Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. So we have um, another special episode today uh, with a question coming from Florida. Um, We have a very insightful question about vaping, and let's hear it from Talia Forer. Hi, Dr. Love. Thank you for your program. Um, My name is Talia Forer, and I am an accountant in Tampa, Florida. I was wondering if the vaping epidemic stopped during COVID. Thank you, Talia, for your very good, insightful question. And um, that is a very interesting. We're dealing now uh, with a pandemic, global pandemic of COVID-19. And just before that, people may have forgotten that we had a vaping epidemic. Um, so in uh, 2019, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, identified an outbreak that escalated to an epidemic of a lung disease identified with people who were vaping. And they came up with a name for that disease called E-Valley, Electronic Cigarette Vaping Associated Lung Illness. It's a lot easier to say E-Valley. The peak of E-Valley was in September 2018. And um, for a last report, according to the CDC website, was February 18, 2020, with 2,807 people hospitalized from E-Valley and 68 people who died. They since investigated. It was a very interesting investigation because... The products went to the FDA for testing on the products, like what's in these products, and the lung tissue and specimens went to the CDC for testing. Not exactly a perfect mash. I don't know how much integration there was in those two labs, but they did uh, identify that they were not treating an infectious disease, but a chemical disease due to vitamin E acetate, an additive in THC that was in the electronic um, cigarettes. Since we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're talked about an epidemic, I thought maybe our listeners would uh, enjoy or benefit, actually benefit from understanding these epidemiological terms. And so whether you're saying pandemic or epidemic or outbreak depends on the level of disease. An outbreak is an illness in unexpected high numbers, such as wound botulism from black tar heroin, uh, which occurred in a few people. An epidemic is an infectious disease that spreads quickly more than the experts would expect expect in a larger area. So we had a vaping epidemic and a pandemic pans around the entire world and is an outbreak um, in multiple countries or continents. So that is the educational lesson for today on what is the difference between an epidemic, pandemic and an outbreak. But for our answer from Talia's question, I am bringing to you an expert with lived experience. Um, You don't need to hear um, statistics today or science or uh, articles. Um, We're going to hear from somebody who has um, experience with vaping and experience with consequences from that. So, Chris, welcome to High Truths. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Ronnie. I really, really appreciate you joining us and sharing something 
um, that uh, may not be proud of, but uh, doing that for the benefit of others. And something happened to you back in August 2020. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the long and short of it is I experienced a collapsed lung. So it was my right lung. Um, woke up one day in early August and couldn't breathe out my right side. So I presumed initially it was COVID due to the pandemic that we're in. Rushed myself to hospital and found out very shortly there was a collapsed lung, uh, most likely due to prolonged use of uh, potentially vaping, potentially marijuana use or a combination thereof. Um, so yeah, that's, that was my experience. What wait, what was that like? You went to the emergency department in the middle of a pandemic. What did that look like? What, what, what part of the emergency department? Because I think the staff was also afraid that you had COVID and they put you in a segregated mm-hmm. part of the emergency room. I believe so, yeah, because I came in essentially wheezing, gasping for air. So I presented as a COVID patient, mate. Um, I came in through, I remember it being kind of like a back door of the hospital, and there were curtains, kind of like uh, medical surgical curtains, so blocking off patients from one another. Um, every single uh, staff member that I saw was wearing face masks and face shields, as I remember rightly. So it was kind of a, a bit of a scary situation. And for the first probably 20 minutes or so, I was pretty convinced that I had COVID, um, a pretty bad case of it as well. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty intense experience. It, it's like walking into another planet. I think the first time I walked into the emergency department and that COVID zone, um, it looked, you know, everybody's wearing like astronaut suits. Um, and um, that whole section of the emergency department, it was uh, cut off to be just negative pressure in case of COVID. And yeah, and, and, uh, and the staff was worried and patients were worried. Um, and maybe even more distance kept from you. I don't know if you noticed that, that the doctors and nurses didn't come as close as they usually would in a hospital setting. Absolutely. I, I think I vaguely picked up on that. I saw that they were being very, very careful in the way they handled everything. Um, but yeah, it was it was a scary situation, not knowing if I had COVID or if people around me did as well. I can't imagine what it was like to work in that environment every single day, but I really, you know, I thank the nurses. I thank the doctors who were able to treat me and get me seen very quickly. That was the other thing I noticed. They were very quick in ensuring I had a test administered and the results of that came back very quickly. Thankfully, it was negative. Um, and then the, the next procedures as well. It was all seemed to be rushed through in a timely manner. So then, um, so they thought you had COVID. They ordered a chest X-ray and the chest X-ray showed the collapsed lung. What did, what did you think? It's like, were you like, hey, good, I don't have COVID or, oh, no, I have a collapsed lung? I forget, I might be remembering it out of order, but I, I seem to remember the test results coming back first. It was within like an hour or so, it was very, very quick. I think I was told that I didn't have COVID and they were still checking to see what it was. And then within a few minutes they had the X-ray. Uh, so it was it was actually a relief, um, I think, because of the time we're in. And one of the nurses actually said to me, you know, at least we know how to treat this pretty well. We, we know what we're dealing with here. So that definitely, I mean, I was still in an acute position, but that gave me a lot of relief. So then it was just kind of a few minutes of waiting to see what would happen next. Yeah. And then the treatment for a collapsed lung, it's called a pneumothorax. Um, And uh, um, for our listeners, we have a copy of your chest x-ray showing a a, a real black spot 
on, on one of the lungs and that's air, that's the lung not working and the other side of the lung, um, you could see that it's more white. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll have that on their website for our listeners to see, but that requires a small operation called a chest tube. They had to put a chest tube into your lung to suck that air up and, um, you know, reinflate your lung. What was that like? Um, it was interesting. I remember they wheeled me out to a room and I think I was administered fentanyl or something. So I remember floating towards the ceiling when that hit and it was all, it was very intense because I had gone, like I said, it was a pretty quick experience. I really appreciate there was a quick turnaround. There's also, you know, I felt like I had woken up just an hour or two before then and all of this had been rushed through. So it was an odd experience to be sat there being administered pain meds and suddenly within no time they were operating. Um, it was a local anesthetics. I was awake throughout the procedure. And it was just a very small, probably like three or four millimeter tube across they put into my my right pectoral. Um, and I don't remember too much after that. I guess I would have been moved upstairs after that. Um, but it seemed to help in some respects. It didn't entirely. It was basically the beginning of, of quite a long, you know, two and a half week ordeal. Um, so it, it didn't rectify itself immediately, but it definitely, it provided me a lot of relief. It allowed some of the air to be let out of my chest cavity. So you're breathing better. I was breathing better. That right away. I did. Yeah, exactly. I could still feel my lung itself was crumpled. It wasn't fully, um, inhaled yet or yeah, it wasn't fully blown inflated. up. Inflated. That's the word. But, um, yeah, I could feel relief just from having that tube in. Right. You know, when, when I was in medical school, uh, the job of the medical students is to go around and pull out the chest tubes around day three. And it, um, it was unpleasant. It was like, you know, pulling a terrible Band-Aid out and people were very uncomfortable with that. That was the medical student job. To, and you learn to kind of do it really quickly to because uh, it's, un, you know, it, it hurts. And I wonder if you had that, that sensation when it take when they took out the chest tube. I don't actually remember too much pain on that one. I feel like it was more of a, it was a strange kind of discomfort. It was an odd feeling. I don't remember it being too bad, but um, it's certainly, it's an uncomfortable, unpleasant experience. Just having, your body knows, you know, there's something foreign inside of you that doesn't, you don't really want it to be there. So it's just a low level of discomfort kind of continually as it's in there. And then as it's taken out, kind of expands a little bit. But Yeah. So um, I just want to, touch on Talia's question. Talia asked, you know, did the you know, vaping epidemic stop during COVID? Um, and I want to make sure um, people understand that you did not have E-Valley. You did not have this illness. You um, collapsed your lung, um, most likely from in, inhaling deeply, which is not uncommon for people who use marijuana because they suck it in, they hold their breath, and sometimes your lung can pop out. And I don't know if you do that as much. And this is maybe a silly question, but you do you hold your lung as much when you vape as much as when you just smoke marijuana? I wouldn't say as much because the primary method I was using for marijuana was to use a, a bong. And that requires a lot of, yeah, you kind of inhale the smoke and then you're mm -hmm. holding it for a number of seconds. Definitely there's an element of it when you're vaping, but it's only for a few seconds. I'd say the lung pressure isn't quite as, as intense. Um, so I don't think it's quite as stressful on the lungs, but either of them is like an unnatural use of the lungs. I would say it doesn't quite feel right after you're doing it for a long time. Interesting. So for Talia and anybody who's, you know, thinking about her question, um, 
I don't think that the e-valley vaping stopped during COVID, but I, I think right before this happened, the, the alert went out in, to the public and we already started seeing a decline. And then CDC's effort was, you know, all in on COVID and not really tracking um, the, the vaping issues. So I am sure that even today there are cases here and there, um, but it's just harder to pick, pick up. How, how did you... Did you associate the marijuana use and, and inhaling deeply to having a collapsed lung? Um, well, I had no idea what had caused it initially. Once I was presented with a couple of different theories, and that one seemed to be the, the dominant one, the predominant theory, I, I felt like that made a lot of sense. But also just the idea of these blebs forming, these kind of air bubbles on the lungs. Mm -hmm. The idea of the... Because I'd, I'd been smoking marijuana for about 10 years and vaping for on and off for probably about five years or so and to quite a large extent so it didn't surprise me entirely that my lungs might not be in great shape or I might have done something to them but the actual yeah the idea of it didn't surprise me but it also it was it was a kind of a shock just to learn that it had been to this extent but also anecdotally just to answer kind of that question I feel like there was a lot of misinformation, disinformation, especially initially with COVID. And I'd heard that smoking in particular wasn't great for respiratory illnesses. It mm -hmm. could potentially lead to worse cases of COVID. But I also heard that marijuana use could actually work as a kind of, I, I guess, an antibacterial or an antibiotic type of oh my application. There's a, yeah, there was articles on that. So I think I probably told myself that actually maybe it was helping a little bit. But for me, I know a couple of people who stopped vaping or stopped smoking during the pandemic but i from working from home i was doing it both of them more than ever so if anything it increased my use um yeah do you you know um very early on marijuana was considered an essential public service did that do you think that that led you to think like hey maybe it's antibacterial maybe i can maybe it's helpful i think it was very specific articles they were early like march or april people were doing research on all sorts of uh, ailments and treatments with regards to to covid and i just saw that come up more than once so i didn't have that in my head initially but i think it's just the flurry of new information and obvious disinformation as well that kind of led me to believe that i was also probably seeking out that type of material that's very insightful you're obviously a very intelligent man and for you to 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 see that type of misinformation makes me think of, wow, how many other people are, are, are getting wrong news? Um, as a matter of fact, I don't know if, maybe not even the places where you looked. And I obviously look at, you know, medical literature and different uh, um, sources, but they did a study from UC Davis at 20 different legal uh, marijuana dispensaries and all of them, 100%, of their plant product had contaminants. So to hear the opposite, that somewhere someone saying this is good for infection instead of causing infection is, is alarming. Um, wow. Um, but, and, and then, so that kind of answered the question like, hey, really you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're smoking? And that kind of answers why, why, I mean, here's a smart guy and he's smoking in the middle of a pandemic, why? Um, and I'm wondering if part of that is an addiction, because you mentioned that you've been using it for many years, and most people don't realize that marijuana is addicting. Do you do you think that you were addicted? Absolutely. I think it has multiple addictive properties, both 
Um, it can be mentally addictive, just the habitual kind of use, uh, especially just inhaling, exhaling. You can get kind of addicted to that particular method of using marijuana, I feel. And also it can be psychologically addictive. I feel like people discount it, or there might be, again, a lot of misinformation out there, but you can definitely have withdrawal symptoms if you're a heavy smoker, night sweats, uh, anxiety, all sorts of things if you cease use. Um, I think I think it's With the combination. Dogs. Withdrawals, yeah, exactly. I think it's a combination of that, the mental, psychological, and, and physical kind of addictions that all kind of, and I also feel like it's insidious because it's not as, at least initially, it's not as harmful as a lot of other drugs. Um, it's not as acutely harmful. I feel like that can lead people to make it a larger part of their lifestyles than they might otherwise. And it can make it easier just to continue use as well because you don't necessarily have that pressing desire to to immediately cease your use and, and to quit. Wow. Did, did you experience withdrawals while in the hospital or when you came home? Actually, I didn't too much. I was kind of surprised. The only thing I really noticed is I was having far more vivid dreams, which I know is that can happen when you when you stop using ingesting THC. Um, so I was having kind of lucid dreams and such, but I didn't remember any particular withdrawals. Whereas I have tried to quit before, I have lowered my use and, and you know smoke more, go back and forth. I noticed previously, I in particular experienced like the night sweats, some of the other kind of mental addictions as well. Um, so I think it was because it was such an intense situation, and I think I knew on every level that I, you know, I needed to be in hospital, I needed treatment. I feel like that actually put a lot of the addictive qualities to the back seat. I had to focus on recovering from this, uh, this accident, I suppose. Yeah, I think coming to the emergency department is a very teachable moment that, that as a medical professional, we should engage in like, wow, this happened to you. I try to think of that as a doctor for any patient, if if I have an old lady who fell, you know, um, or somebody has an abscess, oh, you know, we'll treat the abscess, we'll treat the broken bone, or you know, we got your lung back up. But if we think about why did this happen, and let's think about how to prevent it for you, then then I think we can help our patients more. Absolutely, I think there's always a story behind any particular illness or situation. And as you say, like often the reason why you ended up there is just as important as the treatment and recovery process and to prevent it from happening again. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, it's been now several months. Um, have you gone back to using? Have you been Have tempted? No, I haven't. Um, I think very, very occasionally there's like a flash, uh, particularly like the nicotine addiction from the vaping. Uh, literally once every few weeks for a couple of seconds, I'm like, oh, I'd love, you know, I'd love to vape right now. And then it goes, dissipates. But there isn't any real desire, any urge. I feel like those addictions have completely dropped off. Um, so it's been, it would have been over three months now since I've ingested any kind of like smoke or inhaled anything. Um, I did move to using edibles. So I'm not using marijuana anywhere near as much as I was. I don't use it on a daily basis like I did previously, but I switched to occasionally ingesting edibles instead. I feel like that works better for me. My lungs are definitely happier than they were. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what's helping your addiction and craving too, that you're not. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. I, I thought it would be harder to quit the vape, but I feel like there's just no real desire. After seeing what happened, I don't have any desire to go back to that. Did you, um, what, let me ask you, how old were you when you started using marijuana? I mean, 16. That's my theory. Most people who I find develop problems in their middle, you know, mid-20s uh, or 30s from marijuana started 
at a very young age when your brain is more susceptible to a, any type of addiction. And, um, and I see this a lot on the show, but um, if you are using a drug, um, any drug that's addicting tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, any type of pills, uh, while your brain is growing, then you are four to seven times more likely to develop an addiction than someone who's older. And your brain isn't growing when, you know, when you go to college or when you graduate high school, when you get your driver's license, your brain is done growing at mid-20s or, or even late 20s. So um, did you pick up vaping because you were trying to stop smoking or, or were you using it to put, put marijuana products? No, I'm it's a really stupid story because I started smoking tobacco when I was 16. I smoked for maybe a year and a half and then I just stopped one day. I just gave up using it. And then in my early 20s, for some odd reason, I started to use a vape. I think I started with my friends vaping. It would be maybe we go for some drinks on a night out and have a couple beers and then, oh, let me use that. And it just kind of was a very occasional thing. And I don't remember the day that I actually bought my own vape but I wasn't even addicted to tobacco at the time. I just wanted it just for an extra buzz. So, and I was old enough to know better then. I would have been probably 20, 21, 22. Uh, and then I quit that. Uh, I just threw it out one day. I was like, why am I using this? And then it would have been probably when I was like 24. So there was a couple of years gap in between and the same kind of thing. I started using my friend's vape again and then ended up buying my own. And then by the time I was 25, 26, I was just vaping every day. Um, especially, as I say, during the pandemic, working from home, you kind of just have it right next to you. So I'm hitting it multiple times an hour, just a fully fledged vape, you know, kind of addict to that point. So I brought it upon myself. It wasn't like I was trying to switch from from uh, smoking. It was just something I started to do. No real reason to it. Interesting. And you, um, your experience uh, brings about um, something that the CDC Tobacco Center has focused on it. They, I reached out to them um, to really get the, the data of like, how many people are we helping and how many people are we hurting by having even legalized these vaping products in the first place? And they sent me a study from an author called Sonjeli. And he said, the conclusion was that for every one adult who maybe, maybe quits smoking, and again, these are studies done in Europe, not in America, but for every one adult who quits cigarettes from using uh, vaping products, we create 80 adolescents who never smoked, but will become daily smokers through e-cigarettes. So that one to 80 rule to me as a public health um, didn't make sense um, in, in even having that. But I could see how that traction such a, you know, cute thing. It's electronic and, you know, it has a, an appeal. Yeah, I understand that vaping has been around for a few years now like a good number of years, but it's only really blown up in popularity probably over what, the last 10 years or so. And I feel like I'm still relatively young, but I had left school by the time it was really gaining popularity. So I didn't really experience it as a as an ad adolescent or in um, what we called secondary school growing up in England or high school would be the equivalent. I didn't really experience that kind of wave, but I've noticed it. It seems to be, I forget if I would it be an epidemic since be a pandemic amongst younger <laughs> people computer, yeah epidemic of vaping yeah <laughs> epidemic absolutely I feel like pan is like to pan around the entire world and epidemic mm -hmm. is a small little thing. no that makes sense I think it's the it's the ease of it you can use them in classrooms you can easily do it in between classes whereas smoking was a little bit different I think it's the the different flavors as well which I know has kind of been 
legislated against uh, nowadays, but I think just the multiple tropical flavors, kids can kind of pass them around each other. I, I definitely think it's an issue. That's one of, um, if you go to our website, hightruth.com, one of the questions I have on the quiz is what includes what's the favorite flavor for teens um, in vaping products. And I'm not going to give uh, you the answer so you can go to the website and find out. I'll check it out. <laughs> do you feel that your your brain is back to normal? Or do you feel that it's a deck, uh, you know, that that you've had this addiction for a long time and that you got your brain back. I sort of, when people use, you know, methamphetamine or heroin or prescriptions and they get off and they're in the recovery, I ask them if they got their brain back. And I, uh, I don't know if you feel like you didn't quite have it or if you're better, you're obviously very high functioning, um, uh, gentleman who's, you know, productive, working, insightful. And I don't know if you noticed a difference in yourself. Um, well, I feel more clarity than I did, definitely. I feel like the remembering my dreams has stuck around. I, I seem to dream nightly now, whereas I didn't really recall doing that for a good number of years, at least. I think, as you'd mentioned, like I'm still using marijuana in edible form. So I wonder if that's still having some kind of effects. But I feel a little bit sharper than I did initially. But if whether I've got my brain back, I would say there's still kind of a road road to go down. I feel like I was kind of knocked for six with my experience. I'm still getting my health back as well. And I feel like with that comes your kind of mental clarity. So I feel like I'm still kind of somewhat in the earlier to medium kind of recovery time period, but there's still a little bit of a ways to go. So Chris, do you have any um, advice for Talia or any of our listeners out there from, from your experience that you would want to share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the biggest things that stood out to me for a long time, you know, I'd been kind of grappling. I, I knew I was addicted and, and using both substances way too much. So I kind of been grappling with cutting down, outright quitting, and I'd always built, up, built it up to be this whole big thing in my head. And I realized afterwards that, yes, I'd gone through like a pretty intense experience, but it was way easier than I'd built it up to be. It was, it was far easier to let go of these you know, negative addictions than I might have thought. So I'd remember that if there's anything, not just vaping, not just smoking weed, but there's anything in particular that you feel you need to let go of and is affecting you negatively, I, I would say, remember why you want to let go of that. And it might be far easier than you're suspecting. I, I would say just give it a go. Um, and also, not to be afraid of speaking up. I feel like there are, obviously, there's millions of marijuana users around the world. And some people have a great relationship with it. And a lot of people don't. I feel like we talked about earlier, there's almost a stigma against the idea of there being addiction. There's a lot of misinformation about it. And if you're struggling with it as a substance, don't be afraid to open up that kind of conversation and to address it as the addiction that it might well be. Chris, you're a brave man, an intelligent man, and I really thank you for sharing your uh, experience and your bravery in, in doing, uh, doing so. I think that you will be helping a lot of people. I think our listeners will be benefiting from your experience and your conversation and your willingness to, to share. Thank and you. for Talia, I really want to thank you, Talia, for from Florida for asking about this question and inspiring our wonderful guest, uh, Chris, for coming on. And Talia, you are a young professional, a college graduate, um, a, a, you know, intelligent woman who's asking these amazing questions, but your brain is still growing. So I, my advice to you is to fill it with good things and healthy things uh, as it's growing. 
So Chris, thank you so much for joining us on High Truth. I really appreciate that and you sharing your experience and your chest X-ray with the whole world. (laughs) And I want to bless you with number one, good health, and number two, success in your life. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be on. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.